All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much. We just thank you so much for your kindness to us that you would speak to us. You've spoken to us, and in your generosity, you recorded your word in this book. You gave us a series of letters and these chapters and these verses that we don't have to live in silence. God, we're grateful that you are sovereign over all things and that the whole world holds together in you, not us. And so right now, our, our emails that aren't being returned and the text messages we need to respond to and the shopping list we need to make and the Christmas Eve plans we need to finalize and exams that are coming and papers that need to be written and lesson plans that need to be produced and rooms that need to be vacuumed and errands that need to run. None of those need our attention right now. I ask that you would just settle our souls by the work of the Spirit to be able to be present before you. During the season of Advent, as we celebrate Jesus when you came the first time as a baby and we live now between that and the second Advent of when you come as a great king. Help let the truths of what you've accomplished and what you promised to do settle upon us. What we need right now more than anything else. It's not to be challenged. Um, we want that. We want to be convicted. We want to have change in our lives. We want to be stirred. We want to be encouraged. But what we need more than anything else is to become more impressed with you, Jesus. And so would you show yourself off to us today? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Um, I love Seattle. I grew up in Seattle, um, came to, to Western, graduated, got a degree in graphic design, and then moved back to Seattle. And I worked downtown, one block up from, from Pike Place, um, worked down there for a number, number of years and, and really loved it. I loved getting to the city. I loved wandering around. And, and my wife grew up on the, on the east side over in Bellevue. And, and so we both had this affinity for Seattle, and so we've talked over the years a number of times. I mean, we love Bellingham, but we're like, boy, do we, we miss the big city. I miss being around some of the things in the city. And so, like, should we, should we, should we move down to Seattle and, 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 and like, plant a church there and, and, and be in Seattle? And, and then we go back to Seattle, and we, we, we are in traffic, and we say, no, <laughs> we're not moving back to Seattle. I, every time I go back there, this place I love, and you're stuck in traffic, and you're just waiting and waiting and waiting, and I hate waiting. It's like when I'm sitting in traffic, it's like I'm, I'm getting unsaved. It's just this process of like every time, you know, the car goes forward two feet, I get unsaved, you know, stops, ah, and then it moves again, I get resaved, and it stops. And I just, like, any, can, can you relate? I mean, waiting like that is just terrible, but not all waiting is the same. There are types of waiting that are bad, and there are types that can bring so much joy and expectancy. I was thinking about the hour before my wedding. And I was in this grass field behind uh, the, 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 the church. I was just standing by myself, and I'm thinking about what I'm going to get to do in an hour as I get to, to pledge my life to my best friend, and she pledges her life. And I just sat back there, and I just wept, and I waited, and it was wonderful. And then the service begins, and I'm standing at the front, and I'm waiting. I'm watching the grandparents coming and get sad, and I'm watching the 
parents come in and my mother and father-in-law, soon to be mother and father-in-law come in and I'm just waiting and the bridal party comes in and I'm waiting and then I see my wife, my soon to be wife at the back of the room. I was waiting, but it was a good waiting. It's an incredible, it's a moment of, of joy and expectancy and exuberance and longing and expectation. And as she walked down the aisle, it's waiting. Not all waiting is the same. There is a type of waiting like traffic that is soul sucking. And there is a type of waiting that will put so much joy and strength and vibrancy in your life that it will let you face anything. How we wait really can change everything. Today, we're going to look at two things that we need to be able to wait well. We need hope, and we have to know how to hope. In light of that, if you're able to stand for the reading of God's word, would you stand with me? We're going to look at Hebrews chapter 11 into chapter 12. It covers a massive amount of ground. So what we're really going to do is look at the bookends of this text. The the first few verses, um, just a couple verses from the middle, and then really one verse as we get into chapter chapter 2. I'd encourage you this week, it's it's an incredible text to, to go read through the entire chapter. But this is God's really helpful word for awaiting people. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is, so, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Verse 13 and following and this, this reference, these all died, it's talking about this series. If you, if you go on from verse 4 in, in Hebrews, it just references this biblical history of individuals that lived their lives before God waiting. It says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland, If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And then down at verse 39, and all of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. They lived their whole lives waiting. Since God has provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not not be made perfect. Therefore... Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Feel free to grab a seat. Eugene Lang... um, was an entrepreneur, uh, self-made, multi, multi, multi-millionaire. And in 1981, he was invited back to his alma mater in Harlem to a sixth grade class to speak to this middle school. And he had his, his speech or his, his lecture prepared and his cards in hand. And uh, someone told him right before he was about to go talk to, I think it was 61, sixth graders gave him, gave him this statistic, said... Um, 75% of the kids that you speak to will not graduate high school. That's a stunning number. 
based on the stats that they had over the years, 75% are not going to graduate high school. And Eugene, what he, what he said is in the moment, he realized that what he had prepared to say to them wasn't gonna, it wasn't going to work. He was going to say something like, you know, if you work really hard, then you can achieve anything. Your dreams will come true. And so he said what he did is he tore up the cards and he just stood in front of them and he said this, he says, if you graduate, I'll pay for your college tuition. It's a really cool story, actually. Really, really cool. You're like, I wish I got talked to my school. I hear you. I hear you. It worked. It worked. 90% of those kids graduated. Right? It was only supposed to be 25%. 90% graduated, 60% of them went on to do higher education and actually started in a really incredible organization um, that has given hundreds of millions of dollars to helping kids access education. And what was really interesting about it is that one of the statements from one of the original, from 1981, this original group of kids that he, he committed to said this. It was kind of like, well, what made the difference? Like, what happened? It says, I had something to look forward to. Something was waiting for. On hope. We need hope. I've quoted this a ton of times, and partly encouragement to go read this book by Tim Keller, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. Phenomenal book. He says this, human beings are hope-shaped creatures. The way you live now is completely controlled by what you believe about your future. A lot of this sermon was inspired by um, a sermon I heard from um, John Onmunchekwa, um, God's people are awaiting people. And in it, he's preaching from Hebrews 11, and, and he makes this statement. He goes, your life is spent trying to find hope. You go to job interviews because of hope. You go on first dates because of hope. You make fertility plans because of hope. You daydream because of hope. Your whole life is spent trying to find hope. And most of your frustrations come because you haven't found it, or you found it, and you just can't hold on to it. Job interview turns into a pink slip. You go on a first date, but you don't get called back for a second. Your fertility plans end each month in disappointment. Your daydreams become nightmares. And then this next line from him I thought was so insightful. So insightful. And what you realize is this. Tragedies don't destroy people. Tragedies don't destroy communities. Hopelessness does. When hope disappears, that's what crushes us. He goes on in the sermon, he says, there's three words in your life that will make a massive difference about how things are going to go. When you're facing uh, circumstances and struggles and, and, and opposition, there's three words that will make the biggest difference of, of, of where things are going to go and the kind of destiny that you're, you're, you're going to go towards. And the three words are, are this, I give up. Or I gave up. Parenting is hard. I give up. School is hard. I give up. Relationships are hard. I give up. Faith is hard. I give up. Fighting my sin to look more like Jesus is hard. Amen? What happens if I give up? 
So these three words will make a huge difference for where things go. And those three words, they powerfully shape your future. But there's one word that if you add to those three, will change everything. You, do you know what it is? So there's, there's three words can wreck everything. There's one word that can fix everything. Do you know what it is? It's not Jesus, right? That doesn't work. I gave up Jesus. Like, it is like, that's not what we're doing today. This is not a deconversion service. It's almost. I gave up almost. I almost gave up. And what supplies the ability to put that word almost into that phrase and what it supplies the ability to put almost into your life is hope. That I can't remember who said this, but, but hope is that the feeling that you're feeling right now isn't permanent. That there's something that can get reversed, something that can get changed, and it keeps you pressing on and it keeps you going. Hope pushes that word almost into the moments of struggle and worry and frustration and murkiness and confusion and shadow. until things get better. And we won't spend a ton of time on this, but before we look at how we can actually have hope, let's just define it. So if you type the word hope into your iPad or computer or whatever, and you select it and you hit define, here's what you might get. A feeling of expectation and desire for a certain thing to happen. That's a, that's a good step. A feeling of expectation and desire for a certain thing to happen, and that's good, but there's something that we need to clarify because the, the secular culture's offering of hope and the biblical offering of hope are very different in one particular way. Secular hope has expectation and desire but cannot give you certainty. You hope it works out. You wish it will. You think things will get better, you long for, you, you, you kind of want them to, but you're not really sure they will. Biblical hope is totally different than this, that what you expect and what you desire are sure. They're sure. R.C. Sproul in his book, Shall Live by Faith, says it like this. He says, hope is not taking a deep breath and hoping things are going to turn out all right. It is assurance that God is going to do what he says he will do. John Piper says, I like this, biblical hope not only desires something good for the future, it expects it to happen. Or as Hebrews 1 said, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for in the present moment. That, that what hope is, is it's, 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 faith, it's future faith that's saying, I believe what God says he will do, he will one day do, even though in this present moment I may not be experiencing it. It's sure and it's certain. I imagine all of us want that type of hope. We're going to look at just three ways in which you can have that type of hope. Um, the, the, the first one is this, just look around. Just look around. I don't think I've ever noticed this before um, from this text, but when I was saying this, this last week, verse 3 was an interesting one because it's the only one in this text that isn't talking about the faith of people to come in the past, but it's talking about people's faith right now, and it uses this kind of inclusive we statement. It says, by faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are invisible. And I never noticed in a text that's talking about having faith in this present moment of a future city and a future inheritance and future things to come, how it actually caused us, this, that verse is causing us to look around and actually look back at creation itself. And that really, it was really interesting, but it actually makes sense. What it's talking about is God who created everything out of nothing. 
It's this really fancy phrase, ex nihilo, saying that God, if you go back to the very first part of your Bibles in Genesis chapter 1, it says God said, he spoke, and everything came onto the scene. He said, God, let there be light, and there was light. Let there be a platypus, and there is a platypus. God spoke it all into existence, things that never existed. See, none of us ever create out of nothing. We just collage things. God has the power, the artistry, the genius, the significance to create everything out of nothing. And so when you look at a text like first one, it says, we're looking forward to the things that we can't see. How can I be sure that they'll come about? You look to the things that you can't see that God created out of nothing, and you say, oh, if he is strong enough to do that, he is strong enough to do anything. It makes the unseen more concrete to us. So it says, look around. I, I, I heard this, um, this story like 25 years ago. I couldn't verify it, so I'm sure you can trust what I'm going to say. Um, it, was, it was an interaction with Billy Graham, and, and they, they, someone was asking, they're interviewing Billy Graham, and, and they say, Reverend Graham, like, you know, I want to try to respect the things that you're about and what you say, but, you know, when I read the Bible, I just get to things like the flood. There's a story of a flood, and that it comes, and God sends all this water, and everyone dies, and I go, I just have a really t- hard time believing that. How, how is it that you can believe that? He says, well, I believe Genesis chapter 1, so once I be- believe that, the rest of the Bible was easy, because I believe in a God that can create everything out of nothing. She's struggling with hope. He's struggling to believe that God can deliver on his promises. Look around. Everything you see, he simply spoke it, which means we can trust when he speaks and when he acts, he can redeem it and remake it and refashion it. Look at something else. So we look around, we'll look at something else. Um, I have terrible vision, really, really poor vision. I have the third worst vision at my eye doctor. I asked him. I said, how, where do I rank? kind of competitive. How hard do I rank? Oh, I'm getting to number one, buddy. And uh, that's a stupid idea. <laughs> but I do. I have terrible vision. And when Katie and I were first married, my wife and I were first married 20 plus years ago, we're sleeping and I think I hear something in the middle of the night, don't have my contacts in, don't have my glasses on, don't know where they are. So I kind of, I, I, I lean my head over the edge of the bed. It's dark. And I don't know if you know this, but if you take your finger and you make like a little tiny pinhole and you look through it, it can bring things that you can't really see a little bit more into focus. And so it's middle of the night and I'm doing this. I'm just leaning over the bed trying to find this thing that I hear. And, uh, and I find I see it and it's a rat. So like any new courageous husband, I wake my wife up and I say, honey, there's a rat on the side of the bed. And she leans over and she goes... It's your T-shirt. <laughs> and she hands, me, she hands me my glasses. I put them on and I go, oops. Um, a passage like this, hope, it's like putting on glasses. It lets you see the stuff that you can't see. And what it's doing is it's, it's, it's not correcting your vision for right now. It's actually, it's not correcting the, like, you're nearsighted or farsighted. It's, it's letting us be future-sighted. It's saying, these are the promises of God, and if you'll look at the promises of God, of what He guarantees to do, and you get those promises into this present moment, it will change everything. So one of the reasons that verses 13 and 16 of Hebrews, I believe, is in here in this series of statements about the history of God's people who, by faith, they didn't get it, but they kept pushing. They, they sacrificed. They ran with endurance. They did all these things. Why? Because of this. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them 
and greeted them from afar. They saw it way out there. They said, God, we know something. We know you're going to do something. You've promised something, and we're setting our eyes and our confidence on that which is going to change right now. And it goes on, and what were they desired? They desired a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. They, they died without receiving it, knowing that one day they would get it. They were farsights. One of the reasons I started, I don't remember when I started doing this, but for Advent, for the kind of four Sundays leading up to, to Christmas, I started this. Pro- There's a couple of different books of the Bible that I, that I always read. Um, Isaiah is one of them because it gives this beautiful picture of living lives as exiles, and then the new creation that's coming, and the other one is Revelation, the last book of the Bible. And as I read Revelation, part of what I'm doing is I'm trying to put the glasses on. I'm trying to clean them. I'm trying to get my sight to be clear again to say, this world is good and tough and wonderful and hard and chaotic and nerve-wracking and unpredictable in so many ways, but Revelation says this over all of it, God is sovereign and God is in charge. Over everything that you see, everything that's occurring, every headline, every, every blindsided moment, God is sovereign over all to bring about his kingdom. And then it goes to the end of Revelation. It says, all evil will finally be vanquished forever. Hallelujah, King Jesus. It says there's a new kingdom coming where death and sickness will be no more. Oh, we got to see that. There's a new kingdom coming where no one will go hungry. There's a new kingdom coming when those who have no homes will be welcomed into mansions. There's a new kingdom coming where there will not be division based on ethnicity, but every tribe and tongue and language, like a multitude, will gather around the throne of King Jesus. There's a new kingdom coming where we're told every tear will be wiped away. There's a new kingdom coming. I love how the Bible ends. It ends with the marriage supper of the land. It ends with a party with rich wine and good food. And if you're Baptist, it's grape juice. You know, however you want to apply that. There's a new kingdom coming. And listen to this word. Behold. You hear it again. See it. Behold. I am making all things No. It's getting that into the present moment so you don't say, I gave up. I give up. No, that promise allows us to put the almost. That promise allows us to keep pressing. That promise allows us to keep laboring and working now, even in face of all the adversities, because we know one day Christ Jesus says, I am making all things new. And then he goes on and says this. Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Often the degree of your hope is going to be tethered to the degree of your side of God's future promises. As much as you see them and they become real, that's how much you will hope in this present world. You know, what kept these kids going when 75% of them had a, were, were predicted to not finish? Because they saw something. As this one student said again, I had something to look forward to, something waiting for me. Now, this is probably obvious. Um, that all sounds wonderful but waiting's still hard. And being future-sided means you have to wait. Some of this waiting isn't, isn't that bad. It depends on how long it's going to take to get the thing that you're longing for. I was working on this sermon last, um, this last Friday, and I was sitting in my, my house, and I was in a chair next to uh, a Christmas tree with no presents under it. 
And then I looked up at our, our fireplace and our six stockings for my, for my family, and they're all empty. But come the 25th, by God's grace, they'll be full, and there'll be presents there. And then I looked past the stockings, and I looked at our, our table, our family table, our dining table, and we have six chairs, and all six chairs are empty. But in a couple weeks, when, when my, my oldest daughter is at college, when she comes home, and all my babies are in the same house, we're going to sit at that table, and all those chairs will be full. And so the waiting gets replaced with this thing that I get, but that's only a few weeks. It's pretty easy. It's pretty easy to wait. But waiting patiently can be really hard, especially when the things that you're experiencing right now are really hard. Um, so let's, let's be real about waiting. It's hard. We have to wait. Wonderful things come, but waiting is really hard. And there's, there's a text that can, that can help. Um, Isaiah chapter 40, really beautiful text about even how, how people who are young and vigorous, they still get weary and life can get hard. And so we have this beautiful text that says in, in Isaiah 40, 29 through 30, it says, he gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even you shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Usually when I read that, it's like, they shall wait for the Lord. They shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. Ah, ah, right? Just like, it's just this like, yeah, let's go. And so, so to try to illustrate, that's just sad. I'm sorry. To try, I'm pretty good, eagle. Um, all right. So to try to illustrate this, I, I do need a volunteer. And here's my commitment to you. It won't be uncomfortable. I mean, slightly, because you'll have to be up on the stage. But, but you're not going to have to do anything. You don't have to answer anything. It's not going to be like pop trivia. It's not, it's not Bible trivia. Um, so I just need one person that's willing to come up. It'll just be a couple minutes. Um, do I have any volunteers? <laughs> I like my kids just volunteered each other. No. So you got volunteered. Would you like to do this? Or are you like, like, yeah. Yeah, you got volunteered. Let's, let's. All right. I promise this won't be terrible. I promise. All right. So all you have to do is just go to sit in that chair. That was, this probably mean you're all going to have to work this out later with your friend. All right, so you just have to sit there. Do you need, you want coffee? Egg McMuffin, like a donut. We'll, we'll send someone, we'll track. I just want to make sure you're comfortable. You're comfortable. You're doing really good. So when I think of Isaiah, everyone's like, what is going on? When I think of Isaiah 40, this is oftentimes the image I have. I get to sit in a chair. It's probably more comfortable than this because you're not in a room of people staring at you wondering what some preacher guy's going to make you do. But just imagine you know, you're sitting in a comfy chair, sipping a little chamomile. You're like, chamomile? Yeah, chamomile. A little pan flute in the background. Yeah, it's just, I'm just waiting. Just waiting. Um, I need another volunteer. Pete, you put your, Pete, Pete volunteered. Pete, could you come forward? I need another volunteer. So just hang out. You're, you're doing all right? You're doing great. Pete, Pete, I need Pete to volunteer. Pete is our community life pastor, at least for the rest of today, until he does this next thing. We'll see how this, this, this goes. Um, Pete, I appreciate you being here. So one of the things that I heard about this Isaiah 40 text, I was talking to a buddy of mine, and he is a biblical scholar. This guy does his morning devotional time in the original language. So he opens up his Hebrew Bible, and he flips to Isaiah, and that's what he does his morning devotional time in. And he made this really interesting observation that I heard like a year or two ago. He said, you know, when we, we quote Isaiah 40 and we talk about waiting for the Lord. Because you know what that word wait actually means in the original language? It means to be twisted. 
It means to be tense. It's strenuous. And so I figured to illustrate this, do you know what a plank is? <laughs> so he say, that's what he said. He said, waiting, it's more like holding a plank than sitting in a chair. And so, Pete, would you, would you hold a plank? Do you mind? Do you need to stretch or limber up or anything? You got to take the mask off because you got to breathe. I understand. So Pete's just going to hold a plank. Hey, I, you might be able to see it. You know, it's like, yeah, you know, cheer for him because he's going for a while. I got, I got, I got six minutes and 23 seconds left on my clock counting down. And so this is what waiting sometimes feels like. Like sometimes it's a chair and it's comfy, sort of. You know, if everyone wasn't here, you'd be all right. We'll get you a little stool for your feet. And sometimes it's this. Keep going, Pete. No, just keep You're just waiting upon the Lord. You might renew your strength like an eagle. Even you scroll weary, Pete. You know, and sometimes life comes along. And it just, I don't know, it just gets harder. It's just, just a little, just a little something. No, you know, just keep going, Pete. You can hold it. You're good. Just keep going. Just keep going. Sometimes you shake and you shake and you shake and you shake and you shake. But you just keep waiting for the Lord. All right, you can be done. <laughs> Let's hear it for him. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, you guys. Waiting often is like holding the plank. And as you're doing it, you, you, it's strenuous and it's hard and it's difficult. But, but, but you have hope. You're, you're laying hold of the promises of God and sometimes you are resting in those. And they are settling your souls, and sometimes you are gritting your way to believe them. I hate doing core exercises. That's why Pete did. I was going to do it, but I was like, it ain't going to happen. And um, I don't do them very often, and every now and then I'm like, I really should probably do a sit-up or a plank or something. I'll sit down and do it, and I get three seconds in, and I'm shaking, and I'm going, this is terrible. And, and, uh, and come the new year, every, new, every year I make this commitment that I'm going to, this, this is the year, I'm going to get good at them. So I start January 1st, I'm going to be doing planks. That's what I'll be doing. I'll be doing a plank. And January 2nd, I'll be doing a plank. By about the third week, I'll be not doing them anymore because I will have stopped my resolution. But here's what happens when you do them in, day in and day out. Guess what? It gets easier. And part of our ability to lay hold of the promises of God is to exercise hope, to retell it over and over and over and over again. There's a God who's making all things new. I almost gave up. Not I gave up. I keep pressing. As I look around, look at his creation, that he did everything out of nothing. Oh, what could this God not do? As I, I look forward, I say, oh, look what he promised. But there's one other thing in this text. There's a, there's a firmness to verse 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Christian hope isn't hope and hope. It's not faith and faith. It's, 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 not, it's not warm statements that make us feel good in a moment, but it dissipates so quickly. There's something where this text points, and, and in our Bibles, there's often... Um, Above chapter 12, there's a little italic subheader that the translators put on there just to try to help us navigate through the text. But this is a spot that I think is very unhelpful because there's a connection between verse 1 of chapter 12 and chapter 11, and we see it with this word, therefore. 
All these things are said, therefore, there's supposed to be this bridge into it. What do we do with this? How do we get this into our lives? Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And this is where I want us to focus towards the end of the sermon, looking to Jesus. Oh, we look around, we look forward, but this is what we do. We look to Jesus. Looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. John Onwunchekwa says, says this in, in his sermon. He said, the only thing worse than real pain in this world is false hope. And I got to be straight with you. That's what culture will offer you. I say, I hope it gets better. I hope things work out. I hope things improve. I hope you feel loved. And oh, goodness, we hope for those things. We long for those things, but they can't deliver. And here's why they can't deliver. They can't offer me, a, they can't offer me the confidence that death is dead. See, I need to have hope in something. I need faith in something that death itself cannot take away if I'm going to have true, unwavering, unfading hope because the things that I long for to get better may not get better here. They may not get better until Christ comes back and he delivers on his promise that says, I will make all things new. And so we look to Jesus. We look around, we look forward, but we look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, the one who originated, who modeled it, who lived the life. That's what we're doing in Advent as we live before the coming of Christ and the return of Christ. We're looking at Jesus and saying, Jesus did what I was meant to do. Jesus lived the way that all humans were designed to live with generosity and kindness and compassion and winsomeness and submission to God. And then he died on a cross for all that would trust in him taking the curse that we deserve, taking the punishment that we deserve, and then he went to a tomb, but Christianity is not an empty cross, full tomb faith. Jesus got up out of the tomb. It's a declaration that death is dead. When we say that I have hope that you get better, I have hope that you, you won't be sick. I have, I have hope that you'll be wrecked. I have hope that things will work out. Jesus is the only one in an empty tomb declares that can say, I am bringing it about. You may not see it now, but one day you will. These all died in faith, not having to receive the things that they believed in, but it was coming, and they believed it, and it changed everything in the moments of their lives up until the moment that Jesus returns and we see him face to face. And that's what we're given. A faith that will make all things new, a faith that gives us right now hope to keep running the race that's before us with hope, with hope, not false hope, not warm feelings, but a bloody cross and an empty tomb and an ascended Lord who's right now praying and waiting to come back. Gospel Coalition, a, a website that collects a lot of different blogs and book reviews and articles, they find it really helpful. Um, last year at the end of 2020, they had a series of posts, all titled very similar, similarly, hitting different topics from people that were really dealing with the very thing they were talking about. And, and one of them was this, a word of hope uh, for those with chronic pain. And, you know, some of us, we have little things that are achy and just uncomfortable. But if you've, some of you actually have chronic pain, and some of you love those with chronic pain, and you, and you, and you walk there with them. And I think about someone in our church who... who, who uh, really struggles with, with chronic back pain. And, and like so much so, they can't make it through 
a sermon without getting up. And you're like, yes, we understand. You go so long. I know. I get it. I get it. But 20 minutes, he just has to stand. And he's got decades of life in front of him. And I just, my, my heart aches for him. I hope it gets better. But he just keeps living with it. Think about my mother-in-law who has arthritis in her back and her hands and and just how difficult it is to do something she loves like gardening. And so the, this author, his statement of, of hope for those with chronic pain, Derek Rimshawi, says this. He says, for those of you who groan, who ache, who keep waiting with no end in sight on this earthly horizon. See, this is the difference with secular hope and biblical hope. With no end in sight on this earthly horizon, take heart. Advent points us to the day when our resurrected and ascended Lord will return in glory, a glory He will share with His long-suffering people. It is a redeeming glory. It is a healing glory. One day He will raise those who have faith in Christ to new life with new glorified bodies that won't ache. In this blog series, this, that, that blank was filled in with lots of things. It was, it was hope for refugees. It was hope for the sick. It was hope for the relationally strained. It was hope for the hungry. It was hope for the homeless. It was hope for the fractures, hope for the beat down. Because that's what Christ does. When Christ comes back, he puts all things right. He resets everything into a new creation that will never get messed up again. I don't remember the first time I heard this, but it was a, it was a benediction that was actually given in our church. A benediction is what's said at the very end of the service. It's a good word of blessing to carry into your week. And Corbin, who's coming on as our music director, he was, I think he was leading Christmas Eve service, and he did this benediction towards the end of it, and, and it's really become one of my, my favorites. He, he said this. He said, may the Lord bless you and keep you, and may his, make his face to shine on you. And then he added this line, he said, and may his blessings flow into your life as far as the curse is found. And I was mesmerized. And what he did, and he didn't know it, I talked to him about this, he says, I didn't know it was a combo of like number six, which is the first part of it in this line from Joy to the World. He'd heard it like 30 years ago at a Bible camp or something. It just stuck with him. But what he's saying is that through the grace of God, that it will go as far as the curse is found. What got broken and distorted and messed up and sad and the things that make us want to say, I give up. Oh, God's blessings are going to flow farther than those things. One day justice will rule. One day death will be dead. One day peace will reign. One day all divisions will cease. One day animosities will stop. One day we will have joy unspeakable, unquenchable, and unfading through Jesus. Right now, we live between these advents. And part of how we live well is to look around, to look forward, and to look at Jesus. But if you notice, this text does something here, and I'm going to end quickly with this. It doesn't just say look. It says looking. The ing is really important. It's saying all the time, ongoing. Keep doing it. Get Christ in front of you. Get Christ in front of you all the time. Um, Chronicles of Narnia has got to be one of my favorite uh, book series written by C.S. Lewis, and it's this wonderful story of, of centered around four characters, two brothers and, 
and two sisters and and in a land called Narnia and then a central figure named Aslan, who's a lion who is a Christ figure. And most of the story takes place in Narnia. It's a, and it's a mythic retelling of the Christian faith. And, and there's this, this really beautiful scene in the fourth book in, in Prince Caspian where, where Lucy, the youngest of the, the sisters, the youngest sibling, um, she's, she's in Narnia, she's with her, her siblings, and she begins to hear Aslan's voice. And he says, come to me, child come to me. She kind of ignores it, and then she f- hears it again, come to me. So she gets up, and she begins to wander through the woods to try to make her way towards the sound. And this really tender, beautiful scene is Lucy sees Aslan. She just goes, she goes, Aslan, Aslan, dear Aslan. And she's sobbing. She says, at last, she sobbed. And this little exchange begins to happen. And Aslan says, welcome, child. Lucy says, Aslan, you're bigger. And Aslan goes, that's because you're a little older, little one. Lucy responds, not because you are? And Aslan goes, and this is the line, I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. It's a massive line. Here's what it's saying. Here's what it's saying. Jesus doesn't change, but our side of him sure can. And a text like this is saying, keep looking. Just keep looking. Look over and over and over and over and over again until the greatness and the glory and the beauty of Christ is bigger than all the things that scare you, all the things that worry you, all the things that threaten you. Let him become larger in your sight so that all the other things are small and what you'll get is hope. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we praise you for the living hope of the gospel, your irrevocable commitment to put all things right and make all things new. Your irreversible promise to make everything sad untrue. Everything broken as though it never was. Everything lost, perpetually found. Our hearts are filled with eager expectation for that day. We bless you for your faithfulness to bring to completion the good works you've begun in us and in your world. Father, it's only because of what you've done for us in Jesus that we dare to believe all frustration will give way to great liberation and the ugly of decay will be replaced with the beauty of your delights. Hasten that day, Lord. Bring it quickly. In Jesus' beautiful, powerful, hope-infused, producing name, we pray.